Hello, women in the word. So good to be with you today. It's a great day to get together in here. I'm Lynn Kitchens, part of the teaching team. And it has been wonderful studying 2 Samuel with you. Uh, so many things that we can apply to our lives. Lots of challenging applications. That's also true in chapter 13. Some hard, very hard things in this chapter, but also some helpful things that we can realize this chapter is all about how we set aside our sins instead of dealing with them. Now, I myself could not relate to this. I hope you don't believe me. (laughs) Of course I could. I think all of us can. Um, That's what we kind of do before we face our sins for what they are. I was thinking when I was writing this about our friend that we've mentioned before that uh, lives in China. Her name's Angelina. And I had a really funny experience with her a few years ago. She was here visiting. She was probably in her early 20s. And I said, hey, I'm going to drive my car through the car wash here. And she immediately began freaking out. And I'm like... I didn't know she had never experienced a car wash before in her life. And so, you know, she's just, every, everything that happened, she is kind of freaking. And then I just start laughing. I mean, I just thought it was funny. Um, I talked to her a couple days ago on Zoom, and I said, now, what were you thinking when that was happening in the car wash? She said, I thought I was in one of those doomsday movies water hitting us, foam covering us so we can't see those big plastic strips banging against the car. Totally was new to her, frightening, and I'm laughing about it all. Anyway, when it ended, I was thinking, you know, we were okay. We could laugh about it later because we were safe behind the windshield and all that chaos was out away from us. We liked it that way. This is a temptation when we're sinning. We like it that way. There's chaos out there somewhere that we have helped create because of our sin. There's chaos in someone's heart. Maybe it's altered some circumstances. Maybe it's changed or hurt relationships. But what we want to do is stay behind that windshield. We want to be shielded from that chaos, the guilt and the pain, that we created. And so it's so easy to just want to set that sin aside and not deal with it or think we'll deal with it later. How do we get away with it? How do we do that? Well, we do a lot of things. (laughs) We rationalize our sin. We justify our sin. We blame others for our sin. We have too much fear. We're too mad. We do the comparison game. Well, what they did was worse. And what they did made me have to do this. This isn't good. It's not good for us. It's not good for anyone around us. And we read about that in today's story. Look at the top of your outline, the Proverbs verse there. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them, he finds mercy. You will not see much mercy going on in chapter 13. You will, though, see lots of concealing. 
So before we look at that text, I just want to get everyone's relationship straight here. This is sort of like a soap opera, some, some of these names and relationships. Okay, Absalom, David's third son by Makkah, daughter of King of Geshir. David had probably taken her as a wife as making an alliance, kind of a peace treaty with her father. Tamar was Absalom's sister. They had the same mother, the same father, David. They were both beautiful. Then Amnon was David's first son, so he was heir to David's throne. And Absalom and Tamar were his half-brothers and sisters because Amnon had a different mother. And then we meet Jonadab, who was a cousin to Amnon, and he was what we might call today a weasel. Or if you liked uh, Leave it to Beaver, Eddie Haskell. That's Jonadab. As we talk through this sad story of all these characters, we will see these characteristics playing out. Amnon, passion without love. Jonadab, shrewd without principle. Absalom, hatred without restraint. David, anger without justice. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time Amnon, David's son, loved her. Amnon was so tormented he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. It seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to Amnon, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? That's what this guy likes, to get in on the, the dirt. Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Okay, Tamar, her name means palm tree. We can think of the stature and strength of a tree. We can think of the sweet, sweetness of its fruit. I also think she seemed like she was lovely, she was wise, she was strong in integrity. Since she was an unmarried daughter of David, she would be a virgin princess. She would have been secluded from the outside world in some apartments with other daughters of David who were also virgins. This was the quarters for the princesses. Because she was family, though, Amnon may have had some opportunity to get enough of a good look at her that he decided he was just head over heels in love with her. But it wasn't love. And he nurtured that abnormal lust for his sister. And by doing that, he was giving into and violating the law of God, which would have been against that. This was the passion without love. He was tormented. He was obsessed. He didn't want to serve her, though. Look at verse 2. There's nothing about, I want to do something for her. I want to be kind to her. No, and says it says in verse 2, I want to do something to her, not for her. And he couldn't figure out, how can I make that happen? So not to worry, the weasel Jonadab wound his way into the situation. He was crafty, the Bible tells us, meaning skillful, meaning smart. He was shrewd, but he had no principles. 
What is more dangerous than that kind of combination? He was called a friend or advisor of Amnon's, but anybody in our lives who makes it easier for us to sin is never going to be a true friend. That was him. Jonadab's solution was, let's just get you to be deceitful. There's a good way to handle this. Be deceitful. Pretend you're sick. Tell the king that you want Tamar to feed you. And then he sort of insinuates, then you could do what you want to. Little did the obsessed Amnon know that by following this deceitful plan of Jonabab, he would be led to rape, incest, and it would lead to his death. When Amnon asked David to have Tamar to come make him some cakes, let's see what happens. Look at verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home and said, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. A little different than what Amnon said. Maybe David should have noticed the suggestive and sort of amorous language that Amnon was using in his request. He couldn't help it. Let Tamar make cakes in my sight. You know, I read that in Egyptian poetry that was big at that time. If you loved someone deeply and you were ill, if you just looked at them, you would be healed. So by saying that, Amnon was exposing what he thought was love for Tamar. If I just see her, I will be healed. I guess Egyptian poetry wasn't David's thing. He was writing his own poetry. He didn't notice that. And he didn't notice the idea of Amnon wanting to eat cakes out of her own hands. That's a pretty personal thing. He didn't seem to notice that also. If David had used the words that Amnon used when he told Tamar what to do, I think a red flag might have gone up in her heart. I think she might have had some concerns about going. The Hebrew words about the cake and the bread in these verses are really about a special cake that they would make for ill people. It was called a patient's diet. It was supposed to strengthen your heart. Uh, ironically, these cakes were sort of heart-shaped, which I thought was interesting, uh, a little like pancakes. And so then we see this unsuspecting Tamar going to do what her father says, helping her brother. And then she prepares to bake the bread because Sister Schubert was not around back then. If you don't know about Sister Schubert rolls, you will never have to make a roll again if you go get them. They're in the freezer section of your grocery store. Tamar probably went right to the courtyard. That's where she would have started cooking these cakes, and probably Amnon could see her. And here's why I think that, because we get the most detailed description of her making those cakes. We almost get the recipe for it when we read those verses in our homework. She took the dough. Now, I want you to envision this. I think this is written, we are following the gaze of Amnon. Taking the dough, kneading the dough, making the dough how it's supposed to be, putting it in a pan, taking it and baking, taking it out, 
All those words are written in here, emptying the pan. This is Amnon watching her every move. Brings in the bread to Amnon. He was so close to victory, he wasn't about to eat that food she set next to him. He orders everyone out of the room. Let's look at verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into my chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. Such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you'd be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king. He will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. Being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. First, Tamar was trapped. Then she was ignored, then she was raped, and we'll see, then she was despised. But first, she pled wisdom to Amnon, which he ignored. Her wise pleas described the possible consequences for both of them, and these were her pleas. Number one, don't violate me. That word violate means a sexual humiliation. Secondly, don't violate Israel. This would not go well. It would violate God's laws. This would be an outrageous thing in Israel. When Tamar said this, she was probably thinking about the story in Genesis where Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped, and the very same thing was said. It was an outrageous thing in Israel. Why? Because pagan nations didn't think twice about incest. Israel was different. Israel had a God who was holy and good. They had his laws. And if they followed his law, they had life. They had joy. They had justice. And he had specific laws to protect women. Protect women from incest. Protect women from rape because he loved women. When we follow God's laws, we live the best life because they're for our good. Look at Leviticus 20 on your verse sheet. This was God's law. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it's a disgrace. They shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness and he shall bear his iniquity. This is one of her pleas to Amnon. Third plea, don't humiliate me. She appeals to human decency. She appeals to compassion. Where would she carry this shame? Disgrace would follow her. Everywhere she went, she would bear the stigma of one who has been defiled and possibly be looked at as the one who was responsible for it. Number four, please, don't humiliate you, Amnon. She appeals to consequences he will face. You'll be considered a fool in Israel. And that would mean 
basically a godless wretch. That's the best description of the word fool. You would be considered godless. That's the key word here. And your um, right to the throne of David may be taken away. Then she says, fifthly, don't forget our father. Ask him, and he'll give me to you as his wife. Now, probably deep in her heart, she thinks the chances of that are real big, but wouldn't you be hoping that right here? (laughs) She tells him that she knows that it's against the law of God, but it may provide her a way of escaping Amnon. All these pleas fell on these selfish, stubborn, tormented ears of Amnon and the really ill brother all of a sudden was strong and raped his own sister. And afterwards, he looked into her distraught face and he hated her. Hated her. Look at verse 15. Then Amnon hated Tamar with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which with he had loved her. And he said to her, get up, go. She said to him, no, my brother, this is wrong in sending me away. It's greater than the other you did to me. He would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. This is how Amnon's going to choose to deal with his sin. He's going to set it aside, and he gets rid of the evidence. Bolt the door, not shut the door. Bolt that door, because I'm never going to open it. I'm never going to face the sin of what just happened. Never going to deal with it. He thinks he can keep the reality of his sin locked up and locked away from his presence. No wonder he hated to see her face. He doesn't ever want to see it again because it's going to ruin his plan of denial. When he looks in her face, that door will start to open a little bit. But how can he ever face her unless he faces his sins? And I was thinking, it's so easy to build that door of denial when uh, it comes to our sins because we rationalize them. It's not so easy to pull the bolt off the door that we have put up. It's not so easy to look our sin in the face, calling it what it really is. Calling sin, sin. Looking our sin in the face will, though, keep us from building that door of denial and trying to bolt it shut. What if we've already built that door? It seems like denial, that's one of my first knee-jerk reactions. Denial is one of the things I first think, and that starts to build that door up. God will restore us even when we've already built that door confession. That's his plan. Just go to him. Confession is the key that will unlock the truth about our sin. You know, many years ago, my son Tyler was probably four years old. We took him to a store. I've mentioned this story before. And he saw a brush there that he thought was so cool. It was shut. And when you opened it, all those bristles came up. And he was just doing this. And he said, can I have this? We said, no. Put it away. Later, I'm in his bedroom, 
I see that he has taken that brush from the store because you could fold it pretty small and it is in his cupboard. I was shocked. I had a, I had a thief and he was four years old. So in comes Tyler. I call him in his bedroom and I, and I say, open, open that cupboard door. Because see, if he opened the door, he would have to call sin a sin. He would have to look in the face at what he did. And he didn't have much of a choice because I was standing there. And he opened that door and said, it was just so cool. I just wanted it. I wanted it. So we had a good talk about that. He confessed his sin to me. We put him in the car. We took him to the store. We made him wait all by himself in this line in the store. And he went to the counter and set it down and said, I am so sorry. I took this from you. And I was praying because I thought you could have a really, uh, a cashier that really doesn't get this important moment in a child's life. But she did. And she explained why that was wrong. And I hope you never do it again. But I'm so glad you confessed your sin. Tyler opened that door. The next time he opened that door, he didn't have to. He didn't have to worry about that anymore. He was free. That's God's plan for us when we are hurting and trying to deny our sin. Look at what 1 John 1 says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Okay, let's move on to the next place. This is another place where sins are set aside. But first I want to mention verse uh, 17 again that we just read, where it says, put this woman out of my presence. In the Hebrew, the word woman is not there. So there were just basically two words spoken up out. Doesn't even have the kindness to call her a woman. He's basically saying to his servant, throw this thing up and out like trash. The servant grabbed her, pushed her, got her to the door, pushed her out the door, slammed the door behind her, cast out, locked out, with the possibility that she would be blamed as the seductress, which is sort of what he makes a servant think when he treats her like that. Violated by her own brother, Tamar, her prospect of marriage and family is probably ruined. And there she stood, outside the door, alone, in her long sleeve robe, which the virgin princesses wore, she takes a look at her robe and thinks, I am not a virgin anymore. And she tears and rips it. She spreads ashes on her face. She puts her head on her hand on her head, which was all signs of mourning. And she wails and walks around in the palace like The end of her life happened right then, her life as she knew it. Nothing would ever be the same. 
enter Tamar's brother Absalom. It was the responsibility of a full brother to protect the honor of his full sister. Look at verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. So when you first read this, and he says right off the bat, have you been with your brother Amnon? You think he has the idea of what a fool his half-brother Amnon is. And maybe he had heard he's sick, he wants Tamar to bake him some bread. But I do not believe that Absalom knew the intentions, the true intentions of Amnon, because he would have intervened in that sense. But it seems like he's minimizing it when he says, don't take it to heart. Guess who was taking it to heart? Absalom. Right then, I think he began to plot how he could take revenge against Amnon. Later, Jonabab says that Absalom determined Amnon's death from the day Amnon violated his sister. If Tamar didn't make a big deal out of it, Absalom could make a big deal out of it. But in his timing, he needed to be patient. When he says he's your brother, it could be he was implying, I can't take avenge right now because he's a brother. But take heart. It's in Absalom's heart now, and he's going to do something about it. He didn't want to draw attention to his hatred and his plans, so he doesn't speak good or bad. What that means is he didn't speak to Amnon at all. Tamar lived a desolate woman, That word desolate is the word used for ravaged cities and ruined lands. Tamar lived with her brother in a vengeful dwelling. When David hears about this terrible incident, he was very angry, period. You know, maybe the memory of his own sexual sin with Bathsheba sort of paralyzed him from taking action. Maybe he was morally crippled. Maybe because it was his firstborn and he was an heir to the throne, he didn't really know what he should do. According to the law, if someone rapes an unengaged woman, then you have to pay her father a fine and you have to marry her. Well, that law wouldn't be the case here because in God's law, Two half-siblings could not marry each other. David should have demonstrated some kind of justice for his daughter and some kind of discipline for his son, Amnon. I think here's some possibilities. I don't know for sure. Send Amnon away for a while. Banish him for a while. Take away some of his privileges as an heir to the throne. Maybe take away the future throne from him. Something that showed Israel and Tamar and Absalom and his brothers justice in this situation. I read this, tolerance and inaction in the face of violence fosters further violence. 
And that's what's happening here. David had a duty to do what was right and just for all his people. Remember this verse? Look on your verse sheet, 2 Samuel 8. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Okay, right here, he's abdicating his responsibility, both as a king, both as a father. And not only would David's family suffer, eventually all of Israel would suffer because of his lack of action. One theologian even said this, David's passivity in respect of Amnon's violation of Tamar will lead to the greatest domestic and political crisis of David's life, Absalom's revolt, which is coming soon to the women in the word near you in a couple weeks. Absalom dwelled for two years on the best way to avenge Tamar, feeding his hatred meanwhile, hatred without restraint, hatred without restraint. For two years, he nurtured that vengeful hatred, and it would give birth to murder. And some think his vengeance plan would have included getting Amnon out of the line of succession to be king. I don't know if that was on his mind here or not. We just know what this story tells us at this point. He hates Amnon and wants to get even with him. Remember, Absalom was third in line to be king. First Amnon, then a guy named Chiliab by Abigail, and then Absalom. But we never hear from Chiliab except that he was born. So chances are he died at a young age. So he's not in the picture. So we can't ignore the facts of this story. Absalom wanted to get even and get even he would. Tamnar. I mean, Tamar couldn't escape Amnon. Amnon will not be able to escape Absalom. So dwelling with this constant anger, even planning vengeance, it is not a fun place to be. Sometimes without meaning to, we look up and that is the dwelling that we're living in. We're reliving those past hurts. We're reminding ourselves. We're building a case against the one who hurt us. We want to hold on and remember the evidence. And when we do that, we are feeding, feeding our anger. And each day we realize that we begin to lose our joy, our wisdom, and even our faith can die away. Look at Psalm 37. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. We think I've got, it's okay for me to, to kind of peruse over the sin someone committed against me, but nurturing hatred is a sin. Wanting to get even with someone is a sin. And what we are thinking we're accomplishing is we can set aside our sin because we're focusing on their sin. Our sin is growing all the time. Nurturing anger is sin. Growing our hatred is sin. We somehow justify it because we're focusing on somebody else's sin. You know, every once in a while, I have this conversation with my husband, Ted. I'm sad to admit. <laughs> Ted, hey, I saw that guy again, so-and-so, and got to talk with him, me. 
You haven't seen him forever. That's good. I'm glad. Hey, do you remember how last time you were with him, how much he hurt you? Blah, 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 blah. Ted, no? <laughs> Me. Oh, he's so good. I'm, I'm so bad. Colossians 3.13, this is what Ted does. Bearing with one another, and if you have a complaint against someone, forgiving them. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. To walk out of our vengeful dwelling, we have to take our case to God and trust he cares about us. Trust he's just. What a great thing that he does for us. Look at Isaiah 30. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. There is a way to be released from the pain we feel when we are living in that vengeful dwelling. We have to choose to walk out of that dwelling. We cannot do it if we're not holding God's hand. And then he says, look, I've got some new real estate for you. How about that dwelling? There's comfort in there. How about that dwelling? There's peace in there. To walk out of the vengeful dwelling, we have to say to God, I'm ready to leave. I'm willing to leave. And look what I've packed, my bags of denial. And I'm going to take them and let you carry them. And immediately God's justice and healing begins to get to work. I saw the most incredible illustration of this last week watching the news. Maybe some of you saw it. There was a man that had been in prison for 20 or 25 years for a crime he didn't commit. And someone finally saw his case and worked on it, and after 25 years, he's released from prison. There he is out on the street. And so this woman comes to interview him and says, now, are you so angry? And this was his answer. I learned that dwelling on my anger just puts me in another kind of prison. What a wise man. What an incredible guy. Okay, our last look at setting our sins aside is about a safe shelter. Absalom after two years, is ready to move forward with his plan of retaliation. For those who nurture their anger, revenge is like this luscious fruit that we just have to leave to ripen until it's perfect. That's what Absalom has done. So in early Israel, they would have these customs where they would have festivals at the sheep shearing. They would turn that into a celebration and so Absalom says, hey, I'm going to have a sheep shearing festival. This is what he's going to use to get Amnon there. He was going to host it and invite Amnon. So he goes to David. He invites the king and all the king's sons. And then that's where he has to start. He probably knew David would decline, and David declined, but said, I send my blessing. Absalom continues to press David. He wants all the king's sons there, he says. But then he says, specifically mentioning 
and none. Okay, that was a little bit of a daring thing for Absalom to do. Absalom, Amnon was the crown prince, so he could have represented David there. But the fact that David says, why do you want Amnon there? Really makes me think he had a little bit of an apprehension. He knows how they hate each other. But Amnon pushes him. David agrees. Then we can envision all the princes riding to the festival on their mules, riding over the land of Israel, riding perfectly into the plan of revenge that Absalom had been plotting for all this time. Look at verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, haven't I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. He uses two positive words in a murder. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose, each mounted his mule and fled. And while they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. In one stroke, Absalom avenges Tamar, and takes a step closer to the throne. A murder avenges a rape. At Amnon's death, the princes run to their mules and take off. They may have thought, what if he's trying to kill all of us so he's, he alone can get the throne? And out they run. You kind of picture they're going to run on these valiant steeds. They run to their mules <laughs> and take off. The word on the street was that all of them had died. Can, I cannot even imagine what David felt for the first minutes or hour or however long it took for the other ones to get there. But don't worry, Jonabab will figure this out, make himself look good. He pops up again. The very guy who gave the plan to Amnon is the guy that's coming now to act like the good guy in front of the king, even though his friend and cousin Amnon lies dead. So he did play an evil part in all of this, but knowing more than he admitted to know to David, he gets to be the bearer of good news and say, hey, buddy's up to the king. Hey, not all your sons are dead, just Amnon's dead. He almost says it as if David should go, oh, yay, it's only one son. <laughs> then the guard who is watching the city looks out, and there in a the distance, at the bottom of the mountain, he sees the sons of David on their mules hurrying towards David in the palace. And then Jonah runs again next to David and says, see, I told you. That's what I said would happen. See, remember me. I'm really cool. Remember me. I'm a good guy. I told you this, and it happened just as I said. Jonadab is shrewd, but he has no principles. Look at verse 36 next. As soon as the servant had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came, lifted up their voices and wept, and the king also and all his servants wept very Bitterly, 
Remember Nathan's words to David after his sin with Bathsheba, the sword shall never depart from your house. If we looked down on this moment, we would see the weeping of a broken family, the king, his sons, the servants. Weeping bitterly means a great, great weeping, moaning, wailing together the loss of Amnon and that their other brother is a murderer. They're grieving as they are also experiencing Nathan's very words coming true. Francis Bacon wrote this, In taking revenge, a man is only even with his enemy. But refusing to take revenge, a man is superior to his enemy. This is Absalom. Only being even with his enemy, Amnon. And I think Absalom would later learn, I know, that revenge turns around and hurts the perpetrator. That would happen to him. Okay, let's look at verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshir, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshir and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. The statement Absalom fled, we read that three times in this story. What was he fleeing? He was fleeing from his sin. He was fleeing from the consequences of his sin. The law regarded premeditated murder as something that was, the result would be the death of the person who did it. So Absalom didn't, Stay there, but he could have fled to God. He could have fled to his father or his brothers. He chose to play it safe. He fled to what he knew would be a safe place, his grandfather's, King Talmai, which was about 80 miles away. He fled to safety where he could be sheltered and sheltered from his sins and sheltered from others. Because think about it, probably his grandfather also wants to see Absalom as king. So probably his grandfather would say, yeah, that was something you probably had to do. Amnon shouldn't have done that to Tamar because I don't think Absalom could have stayed three whole years with these people if they were against Absalom. When we sin, it feels good to run to safety, doesn't it? the people that agree with us and shelter us, and we want them to sort of be a shelter around us of the chaos that we may have created. But all it does is prolong our suffering in the long run. We cannot really begin to deal with our sins when we only flee to those who agree with our behavior. We have to step out of those safe places, step away from the people we feel are safe by seeking counsel from others around us. Godly counsel. First of all, in the word of God, we'll have no better counsel than this. Secondly, speaking to the best counselor that there is, our Father, God. Thirdly, going to God's people and speaking to them and asking them about the truth of our sin. Look at Proverbs 11. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. 
So praise God. Our God is ever faithful to us. Look at Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint. He won't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And praise God that our God is forgiving. When we confess our sins, he will unlock the doors we have bolted. He will pull us out of those vengeful dwellings and he will become our truly safe shelter. Let's pray. Lord, how good you are. We are so grateful. We are so grateful that you love us. You have plans for us. And we just ask that we would always call on you for every difficulty that comes our way, every sin we commit, and trust you to start the healing process. We pray this 